Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today I'm joined by Dr. Robert Parlberg. He is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Wellesley College and an Associate in the Sustainability Science Program at Harvard University. His research focuses on the international agricultural and environmental policy, regulation of modern technology, including biotechnology. He is the author of many books, and today we're going to focus on one of his most recent ones, Resetting the Table, straight talk about the food we grow and eat. So, Dr. Parlberg, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's good to be speaking with you. Okay, great. So, uh, let me just ask you, uh, is the way we eat what we eat, what we basically put on our tables, always a political issue? Not all the time. Uh, for example, if I decide to eat fewer candy bars to protect my health, uh, that's not political. Okay. If I tell you you should eat fewer candy bars to protect your health, that's not political either. But uh, if, I, if I ask the government to put a tax on candy bars uh, to reduce everyone's consumption, once I engage the authority of the government then it does become political. Once I either seek or use public authority, government authority, then in my view, you've crossed a line into a, a, a political world. Mm -hmm. But I mean, our consumer behavior also has a political aspect to it, right? I mean, the kinds of foods we consume, etc. It has a public health aspect. Uh, it has... Mm -hmm a environmental aspect, mm -hmm. uh, it has an economic aspect, it shapes the marketplace, uh, but uh, I like to maintain a distinction uh, between activities that engage the state uh, as opposed to those that, uh, that do not. In an indirect sense, everything is political, but then, uh, but then you've lost the value of the word. If, everything, if it, political means everything, then it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, right. So, I mean, just to make this clear, the kinds of questions you're focusing on the book, are they all political or not? They're mostly political, but they're not uh, all uh, political. Some are very personal. The, uh, the ethic of um, eating meat from animals, uh, I think that can be a very personal issue. It doesn't have to be political. If I, if I launch a campaign to promote a vegetarian lifestyle, then it does become political. Mm -hmm. Right, but uh, maybe we will come back to the consumption of animal products later, but if it becomes an ethical issue and then it enters into the political realm, it can become also a political issue, correct? Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. So, would you say that uh, people, particularly in the Western world, consume too much food nowadays? Well, certainly in the United States, uh, uh, many people consume uh, too much food. In the United States today, 42% of the adult population is clinically obese. Uh, that's three times the rate of, of the 1960s. And it's uh, the cause is usually excessive calorie consumption, not uh, not genetics. Uh, obesity rates in America have tripled since the 60s, uh, mostly because food calorie consumption has has increased uh, dramatically. It's now a public health crisis because obesity is associated with cardiovascular disease and and diabetes. The reason the reason for this increase in consumption uh, rests, I think, heavily with the food companies that have designed ultra-processed uh, manufactured products that are high in sugar, salt, and fat. They're designed intentionally to be difficult for consumers to resist. Um, I mean, we have uh, uh, the food companies say, no, 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 it's a matter of personal responsibility what you put in your mouth, but stop to think about it. Uh, if Obesity has tripled since the 1960s. Does that mean we're all three times as irresponsible today as we were back then? I don't think so. I think it's 
It's the foods the companies have put on the market and surrounded us with and then relentlessly advertised, including to children, that uh, has pushed uh, consumption and obesity rates up. But uh, it depends on what part of the world you're in. In some parts of the world, in many parts of Africa, for example, uh, people still don't get um, enough to eat and children are stunted and thin and weak from diseases diseases that are linked to undernutrition, not overnutrition. Right. But just to try to be a little bit more specific, and since you focused on issues like obesity, when you say that people consume too much food, do you look at it just from a sort of public health perspective? I mean, in terms of the health effects it has on people or also from other perspectives, like, for example, the fact that maybe if people consume too much food, it might also have a very negative impact on the environment. Yes, it has that uh, uh, effect as well, particularly if they're consuming things like uh, red meat from ruminant animals that uh, belch out methane uh, when they're uh, when they're uh, digesting their food. Uh, methane is a a very potent greenhouse gas, and it's 30 times as potent as CO2. And so uh, excessive meat consumption is an environmental concern, as well as a personal and a public health concern. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in terms of food production, do we know what would be the best methods of farming that we have at our disposal nowadays? I mean, what are the ones that are best supported by the evidence in terms of both producing the highest quality food for people's consumption and also reducing their environmental impact? Uh, yeah, it, it depends on uh, where you are. Uh, a, lot, a lot of these questions about food and farming can only be answered if you identify what part of the globe you're talking about. Optimal farming methods will differ dramatically depending upon the availability of land resources, um, the climate, uh, the terrain, the rainfall, the labor supply, uh, wage levels, capital resources available to uh, purchase modern farm equipment. In countries that have abundant land and capital resources and high wages, and the United States is an example of that, um, it, it makes sense for farming to be large scale and highly automated and, and mechanized. In countries that are, that are more crowded uh, with lower wages and less capital, uh, smaller farms that use more human labor uh, make sense, at least in the short run, although I would like to, uh, to move wages up in those countries and eventually move people out of uh, uh, low income farming into higher paid industrial and service sector and post-industrial employment. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine then that there wouldn't be any one-size-fits-all solution for farming across the globe. Like, for example, there are people that say that perhaps organic farming would be the best solution across the globe. Other people would point to uh, using genetically modified organisms, other people would say industrial farming, other people would say, for example, indoor farming, but perhaps we have to look on a case-by-case -case basis uh, in each specific place. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's very much the case. Uh, you mentioned uh, organic farming. Uh, actually, uh, until 100 years ago, when we started using man-made chemicals, synthetic nitrogen fertilizers. Before that time, all of the food ever produced worldwide was uh, de facto organic. Uh, organic only means uh, no use of man-made chemicals. And before man-made chemicals were available, everything was de facto organic. And that's interesting to me because uh, back then, uh, farmers were, were poor and people were not as well fed uh, as they as they are today. I think uh, I do not uh, favor a return to the organic uh, methods of the past. Uh, I don't think they deliver on uh, the promises that uh, the organic sector likes to make. 
That's interesting. So, I mean, the kinds of promises that people from organic farming put on the table, that they say that perhaps it would be the best way of having the least environmental impact and perhaps contributing to fight back against climate change and produce enough food for all people. I mean, what would you say are the promises where they fail the most? Well, if you look at organic production today, um, where farmers have decided not to use modern fertilizers, where they grow crops in much the same way that farmers did uh, 100 years ago, uh, crop yields are lower, uh, cost of production is higher. Uh, so uh, with lower crop yields, you have to use more land, you have to plow up more land to produce the same amount of food, and that's actually damaging to the environment. It destroys wildlife habitat and those land use changes release carbon uh, into, into the atmosphere. Uh, also, um, those higher production costs mean higher costs for consumers. In the United States, organically grown fruits and vegetables cost 54% more than conventionally grown. Uh, the United States does not consume enough fresh fruits and vegetables. If we went to organic, uh, those products would be more expensive and we would consume even less. And and, and what, what are we getting for that? Uh, in my book, uh, Resetting the Table, I review the, the scientific evidence uh, concerning the, the, the alleged uh, nutrition benefits and food safety benefits from organic products. And uh, I can't find any convincing evidence. Uh, the scientists have not found any convincing evidence that organically grown foods are more nutritious than conventionally grown foods. They sometimes claim they are. It, organic uh, milk does have 50% more beta carotene than conventional milk uh, from cows that are not felt fed uh, strictly on organic products. But uh, uh, conventional milk has so little beta carotene that 50% uh, more than almost nothing is still almost nothing. And so nutrition scientists just haven't been able to find any nutrition benefit. And the food safety benefits in, in advanced industrial countries where foods are uh, monitored, uh, washed, and where the application of farm chemicals is uh, licensed, it's done by uh, trained practitioners, the food safety benefits are also uh, uh, negligible according to the science. There might be some occupational advantages to the farmers themselves uh, from not using uh, some toxic uh, chemicals. But to consumers in rich countries, um, those, those benefits are barely measurable. And in organic farming, even when it comes to chemicals like pesticides, isn't it the case that they are not completely absent from organic food production? I mean, isn't it the case that sometimes what they use is instead of synthetic uh, chemicals they use natural ones or at least the ones that they are that are labeled as natural yes that's right uh, organic farmers use use pesticides uh, they're as you say naturally occurring pesticides like uh, like a naturally occurring soil bacterium um, BT or they use copper sulfate or they will protect against uh, weeds by spreading plastic mulch on the field. Or they will use gas-powered flamethrowers uh, to, uh, to burn the weeds instead of herbicides to kill the weeds. Uh, the, uh, the organic rule uh, introduces what I consider to be a lot of needless uh, distortion and increased uh, production cost into farming systems. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about GMOs, genetically modified organisms? I mean, what does the evidence uh, say about them? Well, uh, GMO crops uh, are crops that uh, have been developed using modern biotechnology, recombinant DNA technology, um, 
crops have been developed that are more resistant to insect damage or to chemical damage. Um, in some cases, GMO crops have been made more nutritious. There's a, a variety of rice known as golden rice that has more beta carotene. So uh, that's a precursor to vitamin A, so it can protect children against vitamin A blindness. What most people don't realize is that uh, these crops in most of the world are not yet legal uh, for farmers to, to plant. Um, advocates have worried about new risks from these crops to human health or to the environment, and they've campaigned. They've campaigned for very strict regulations, and those strict regulations have uh, prevented farmers in most countries from, from using uh, these crops. Now, uh, in, in my book, uh, Resetting the Table, I, I review what uh, scientists have said uh, about this, and all of the most prestigious science academies in Europe have found no evidence of any new risks to human health or to the environment from any of the GMO crops that have been developed um, for, for the market so far. The European Union Commission has said in writing that, uh, that the use of modern biotechnology introduces no greater risk than the use of conventional breeding uh, when developing uh, new crops. Uh, but, uh, uh, but governments have listened to advocates and to uh, consumer opinion, and consumer opinion has, has turned against GMOs in much of the industrial world. And so these crops are seldom grown for direct food consumption purposes. We still grow a lot of GMOs in the Western Hemisphere for industrial purposes, like GMO cotton or GMO uh, yellow maize for, for ethanol or GMO soybeans for animal feed, but very little uh, for direct human consumption. So do you think that GMO crops should be more widely adopted and people should invest more in them? I, I mean, do you think that the sort of benefits that they bring to the table would uh, warrant that? Well, it's hard to say because uh, they've, they've been so stigmatized and the regulations uh, imposed on them have been so strict that um, new developments and new investments have, um, have largely dried up. So we don't know what their potential would have been if they hadn't been so stifled by, by regulations. What's interesting to me now is that the next generation of modern biotechnology, it's called gene editing. Uh, right. it, uh, CRISPR crops are gene edited crops. I thought that this new technique was going to escape the stifling regulations imposed on recombinant DNA GMOs uh, because there's no genetic material transferred in from uh, from foreign species. It's a, it's a process that resembles natural mutation. Uh, and yet uh, in 2018, the European court uh, ruled that uh, gene edited crops should be, should be regulated under the GMO directive uh, as though they were uh, GMOs. And, and so this will, uh, European scientists have complained, but until that GMO directive is, uh, is rewritten, this will put a stifling blanket of regulation on gene edited crops in Europe. And we know from past experience that uh, the, that will that will be considered uh, the, the hurdle uh, that other countries should should get over as well. And so European style regulations are likely to spread beyond Europe into Africa and, and Asia. Mm -hmm. But particularly CRISPR crops, those are very novel, right? I mean, CRISPR technology is very recent, and so probably, I mean, there are not that many applications of it yet, or, or, or are they? Well, there are applications of it. They've not been commercialized. They're okay. in laboratory experiments. Yeah, they are not. Uh, they are, and that's one reason the European court said that uh, they should be treated with, uh, with uh, precaution. Uh, of course, the... Uh, uh, the, the extreme form of the precautionary principle is uh, never do anything for the first time. And that's a, 
and that's as a way of maintaining yourself that, uh, that I don't think is ideal. Right. So I also mentioned this before, but what about technologies like indoor and vertical farming? What do you think about them? Do you think that they could be good solutions? There's a lot of innovation going on in this space, uh, so uh, we don't know yet exactly where it's going. Of course, greenhouse production using natural sunlight has been a successful farming method for for decades, uh, especially in in regions that are vulnerable to to temperature extremes uh, from from cold weather. But uh, farming inside enclosed uh, buildings using uh, grow lights rather than sunlight uh, is a is a more uh, recent uh, innovative thrust. It, and we know that leafy greens can be produced this way, uh, especially for for high-end restaurants that like to brag about uh, uh, about their food being grown right there in the city. Uh, but uh, most food crops don't mature fast enough uh, to make the, the very high energy costs and the high uh, urban labor costs of these farming techniques uh, affordable. And so a number of, of uh, vertical farms have, they're, they're on, the, on the drafting board, but they've never been built or they were built and, uh, and they've, they've failed. So uh, we don't know, there are forms of urban agriculture that can be quite successful, community gardens with uh, public support uh, can be a wonderful way uh, to to build leadership uh, and and help communities uh, remain uh, strong. They don't produce a lot of food, but it's a it's a it's a valuable form of agriculture. I'm not against urban agriculture. I'm a little skeptical though about uh, about the commercial promise of vertical farming. Mm -hmm. So apart from these technological varieties and solutions we've been talking about. What do you think about the idea of people consuming local? Do you think that that would be in any way a good solution for the kinds of issues we are trying to deal with here when it comes to food production and consumption? Well, once again, it, it may depend upon where you are. If you live in a country where uh, the climate uh, allows the production of um, fresh fruits and vegetables year round, you live in a country that has um, access to um, to fisheries. I guess I'm describing, in some ways, a country like Portugal. Um, then, and if you like a traditional diet, you can you can supply a large portion of your of your food based on, on local production. But in a lot of the world, including the United States, that just doesn't doesn't work in the United States because. Uh, the, the winter months are are so uh, inhospitable to fresh fruit and vegetable production uh, because it's such a vast country without uh, without nearby fisheries uh, for the interior part of the country. The United States currently imports 50% of its fresh fruit consumption and one third of its vegetables and 80% of its uh, seafood. If we if we decided to to localize our food system, and if we tried to replace those imported foods, those are all healthy foods, if we tried to replace them with locally grown substitutes, uh, the price would be uh, unaffordable for, for most uh, consumers, and our, our diet would be, uh, would be adversely affected. I don't think that, uh, I, I'm, I don't think Countries are going to go in the direction of relocalizing their, their food supply. Transport costs keep falling, and that gives people more affordable access to foods from a distance, foods that they want to consume, healthy foods, particularly in, in the off-season uh, when they can't get them uh, locally. Would it even be feasible for a particular country to produce all, or try to produce all sorts of food that people consume on their own land? Would that even be possible? Yeah, you could grow mushrooms in, in Greenland if you want to. Uh, if you're willing to 
pay uh, to heat the greenhouses. Uh, it's no problem. But why would you want uh, to do that? Uh, consumers don't want to pay that much for food that they could get uh, imported from a distance, like China, for example. Uh, ocean freight uh, transport costs, if the foods are shipped in bulk, um, make uh, the the cost of imported foods uh, competitive with those of, of locally grown foods. And in the off season, um, you can't grow things locally at an affordable cost. United, look at the United States. The United States in 1990 was importing 10% of its food consumption. And now we're importing 19% of our, our food consumption. Uh, food systems around the world are are continuing to, to globalize uh, rather than, than localize. But is that also good for the environment? Because we've been talking mostly about uh, how good it is for consumers, but what about its environmental impact? Is this sort of globalization of food production better for the environment or not? Yeah, some uh, environmental advocates worry about what they call food miles. Uh, <laughs> food travels a long distance. Well, maybe we're burning fossil fuels that we don't have to burn in order to make that transportation possible. If we eat locally, food miles will go down and fossil fuel burning will go down. But that's not a reliable assumption uh, because, first of all, most greenhouse gas emissions from from the food sector don't come from food transport. They come from food production on the farm. Now that's the mm -hmm. place to look for uh, opportunities to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And, and the emissions from transport usually don't depend upon how far the food travels. They depend instead on the mode of transport. Is it, is it land, sea, or air? And on the load size. Is it a bulk load or is it a small, little, tiny uh, uh, load? Uh, if you the if you look at the, the carbon footprint of a tomato uh, that uh, is picked on a local farm and put in a, a bushel basket and uh, driven in a pickup truck to a farmer's market and then uh, purchased uh, by a consumer driving a private automobile uh, back home, uh, the carbon footprint of each, of each tomato is, is huge compared to tomatoes that are moved about in bulk by ocean freight over vast distances. It's not the distance traveled, it's the load size and the mode of transport that matters. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to politics, I think there's a very interesting question to ask you. So are, is there any relationship between the kinds of food people consume and their socioeconomic status? I mean, in terms of if they consume food that are that is higher or lower in calories, higher or low quality, if they are able to consume organic, for example. Well, socioeconomic status uh, matters, of course, within countries as well as between countries. But uh, uh, when you look around the world, a lot uh, depends on on culture uh, as well, and on on uh, culinary traditions uh, as well. Uh, in East Asia, uh, when people get more money, when when countries urbanize and industrialize and become more affluent, um, the consumption of meat and fish goes up uh, dramatically. These are countries that want to consume more meat and fish, and now that they can afford it, their per capita consumption has increased uh, dramatically. In South Asia, where there are religious stipulations against uh, consuming uh, beef in Hindu India or pork in Muslim Pakistan, uh, when income goes up, uh, meat consumption doesn't increase as much. Uh, so, um, and in Africa, in Africa, where especially uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, in the countryside, income uh, has barely increased at all in recent decades. 
in Africa, people consume very little meat. It would be good for nutrition if they consumed more meat. Um, but, uh, but there, it's the socioeconomic uh, status. It's their, it's their impoverishment that prevents them from, from doing that. Of course, in, in the United States, uh, consumers in, in nearly all socio social economic categories consume too much meat and uh, too many uh, uh, ultra-processed, unhealthy uh, food commodities and, and products loaded with extra sugar, salt, and fat. But uh, better educated uh, consumers in the United States, often in the highest socioeconomic categories, tend to become more aware of the health risks of this kind of diet. They become more health conscious and their uh, consumption of unhealthy foods is, uh, is much lower than among uh, less well-educated, less affluent populations. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the connection between food production and its environmental impact, what are the sorts of industries that contribute most to uh, climate change, for example? Because this is a sort of debate that particularly when people that promote a vegan diet versus the ones that promote an omnivore diet have a lot of the time uh, when they're trying to uh, when they're trying to understand if it is the meat industry or plant production that has the biggest impact on the environment and how we could overcome that etc yeah uh, climate is of course uh, a very important dimension of environmental protection, but uh, we also have to worry about uh, very traditional uh, pollution issues, chemical pollution of waterways and soils, uh, deforestation, habitat loss, loss of biodiversity. Um, and it turns out that uh, all agricultural production will have some adverse environmental effects, both low yield and high yield farming can have adverse environmental effects. For low yield farming, the only way to increase production is to plow up more land and that destroys more wildlife habitat and that's bad for biodiversity and the environment. With high yield farming, you can damage the environment with uh, excessive applications of agricultural chemicals, fertilizers and, and pesticides, or with uh, excessive uh, irrigation, improper irrigation. Uh, we've learned, though, that uh, if you use if you use modern uh, GPS positioning and a variable rate application equipment and uh, good sensor systems, if you move toward uh, digital agriculture and what's called precision agriculture, you can increase production while reducing the wasteful use of uh, water and chemical and energy inputs, and that's. That's the, the, that's the sweet spot that uh, I'd like to see agriculture move toward. Now, when it comes to climate, <clears throat> uh, yes, agriculture, modern agriculture can, can damage the climate. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions from fertilizer production, from burning diesel fuel, and also methane from, from ruminant uh, uh, animals. The, the animals are a part of this problem. Uh, Agriculture around the world is a direct source of roughly 17% of all uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and uh, animals uh, contribute uh, to that, uh, depending on where you are. Uh, meat consumption in rich countries is twice as high per capita as meat consumption is in the developing world. So uh, in rich countries, red meat consumption in particular is something that uh, we should cut back on for the sake of the environment. But in developing countries, <clears throat> animals that are grazed uh, in very dry countries uh, also uh, have uh, methane emissions. And methane emissions from, from traditionally grazed animals can actually be higher per pound of meat than from uh, animals in modern feedlots because it takes so much longer for traditionally grazed animals to reach a, to reach a market weight. Mm -hmm. So, and what do you think specifically about the solution proposed by by vegan advocates? I mean, the idea of 
completely, completely cutting or reducing to zero the consumption of meat. Do you think that that would be a good solution and that it could be viable? Well, um, in much of the world, as I said, per capita meat consumption is still increasing. In, in East Asia, for example, it's extremely high today in the Western Hemisphere, uh, in the United States and in, in Latin America. I guess I would want to know um, how we are going to move a significant part of these uh, meat eaters uh, toward a, a vegan or even uh, just a, a vegetarian uh, diet. In the United States, um, um, fewer than 5% of consumers are, are vegetarian and fewer than 3% um, are at any one time vegan. I would like to know uh, how will you, how will you pull those people away from the diet that they're consuming today. Um, I think it's, it's, it's wonderful if a single individual makes a choice uh, to adopt a vegan lifestyle, including no leather, no fur, not just no animal products in the diet. Uh, but I don't know how you can uh, scale that up uh, without, um, uh, without an authoritarian government. And I don't want, I don't want an authoritarian government uh, managing my diet because uh, they'll then start managing everything else uh, in ways that I might not appreciate. Right, but but just for the sake of the argument, let's assume that we were really able to convince people to stop consuming animal products altogether. Would that be good for the environment? Well, um, it it would. Um, in most parts of the world, because it's not just um, the, the habitat that's uh, destroyed to create grazing lands for animals. It's the it's the agricultural the crop production that uh, is devoted to to animal feed. Uh, corn production, soybean production in the United States is uh, largely uh, to feed animals. A lot of sort. Soybeans are exported from the United States to China to feed pigs in China. If you could somehow get the Chinese to eat less pork, rather than continuing to eat more pork, you could uh, you could reduce uh, uh, pressures on cropland in the United States to to produce corn. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. But for example, sometimes I hear from let's call them meat eaters, uh, I mean people who debate vegan advocates, uh, they saying that if we stopped consuming meat, meat uh, we would need to produce even more plant products and so we would have to expand uh, the land uh, dedicated to agriculture. Is that right? Well, it's such a fanciful uh, vision to stop eating meat, it's pretty hard to say uh, exactly what the scenario would be. It is true that there are some kinds of land, um, dry grasslands, whether that's in the southwestern part of the United States or in the drier countries of sub-Saharan Africa. These lands are, for food production, the only thing you can produce on these lands is uh, meat and milk uh, from ruminant animals because uh, the grasses aren't digestible inside the human stomach but they are digestible inside the stomach of, of cattle and, and goats uh, and so um, yeah if you if you told those people they couldn't eat any meat they would have to leave those lands and go somewhere else the only way you can sustain a population on those lands is by grazing animals and then eating the meat of the animals. Uh, but, um, you know, you can raise, you can, you can take lands that are used today to grow feed for animals and you could, you could grow something else, a protein crop on those uh, lands and replace the protein that you won't be getting from, from meat. But a fully vegan diet is more difficult uh, to, to maintain because you have to take care to replace key micronutrients like vitamin B12 that are really only available 
uh, from from animal products or from dietary supplements. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, going back to the title of your book, Resetting the Table, so in what ways, in what specific ways would you reset our table, particularly in the Western world? Well, yeah, I think there are things that uh, that the United States could learn from Europe, and there are things Europe could learn from from the United States. Uh, the United States, as I say, has an obesity rate now, 42%. That's roughly twice as high as on the continent of Europe. If you look at European policies, uh, they include, um, in some cases, taxes on uh, on sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, I think the United States should move in that direction. European policies often include nutrition guidance on the front of the package of manufactured food products. Uh, I think the United States should move in that direction too. Right now, the United States only has a nutrition facts panel on the side of the box, and it's all fine print and small numbers, and it doesn't give consumers an at-a-glance idea of uh, whether they're going to buy something that's nutritious or not. Also, a number of European countries place restrictions on advertising uh, foods to children, especially junk foods uh, to children. Right. The United States doesn't have any regulations of that kind. So I think the United States should move in, in a European direction when it comes to nutrition guidance and, uh, and discipline on food companies to fight obesity. Also, I think the United States should move in the European direction when it comes to the welfare of farm animals. Uh, the European Union over the last two decades has strengthened considerably its regulations on uh, housing for, for example, pigs. Uh, uh, they now have to have uh, more space, more light, less noise, enrichments, including toys. Pigs in Europe now have to have uh, toys to, to fight uh, boredom. Uh, this has proved to be an affordable reform uh, because uh, the major cost in pig, in pig production isn't housing, it's feed costs. And there the United States has an advantage over Europe. I think the United States should uh, impose uh, tighter animal welfare regulations on its livestock industry. As for things Europe can learn from the United States, I guess this goes back to our, our comment about um, CRISPR crops. I think the European Union uh, makes a, a mistake when it uh, places a stifling blanket of regulation on, on uh, a new food product simply because it's new. And that was, the, that was the reason given by the European court for regulating CRISPR crops like, uh, like GMOs. The European Union doesn't place tight restrictions on breeding practices for crops that rely on, on mutations. And those are the riskiest kinds of breeding practices. But they've been around for a while, so the European Union doesn't place a restriction on that. It does restrict CRISPR crops because they're new. I think that if you, if you over-regulate something uh, simply on the basis of its novelty, you're going to uh, stifle regulation and drive new investments out of Europe uh, into, uh, into other countries, including in Asia, not just North America. Mm -hmm. But do you think that some of these issues are political in their origin? I mean, that perhaps they come from political decisions and not really, for example, from uh, scientific research or any of that, and it, they could be solved uh, on a political level? Well, uh, it's true. Some of these decisions don't, don't come from science. We talked about GMOs. The science academies say they found no new risks, but that hasn't lifted the regulations. It's fascinating to me that, uh, uh, that also in, in the United States, uh, the progressive groups that say follow the science when it comes to COVID or when it comes to climate change don't necessarily want to follow the science when it comes to, uh, to innovative uh, uh, food uh, uh, products. Uh, but uh, there are cultural differences uh, between the United States and Europe that also play a role here. We know from survey research that the average American 
values, uh, freedom, and uh, liberty uh, more than social protections provided by uh, the government. The average European values social protections provided by the government more than uh, than freedom and and liberty, and and that uh, difference is is the is the explanation uh, for a lot of things. Uh, it's the explanation for Europe's more precautionary regulation of modern uh, biotechnology. It explains uh, the reluctance of politicians in the United States to impose taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages or to impose regulations on the burning of fossil fuels. Uh, it's a these cultural differences are at the foundation of political decision-making on both sides of the Atlantic, and they tend to produce uh, divergent results. Mm -hmm. And do you think that, uh, and perhaps this will be my last question, do you think that there are in decisions that individual people can make in terms of the kinds of food they consume that could have an important impact in terms of all of these different kinds of issues we've been talking about, like, for example, public health, climate change, and so on. Yes, I think so. Um, for, for personal health and public health, consumers in the United States, at least, uh, should be eating more like consumers in, in Portugal. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, uh, per capita beef consumption in the United States is down. Uh, per capita beef consumption in the United States peaked in 1976. We've been moving away from from red meats, but not fast enough. And we're certainly consuming too much uh, pork and and poultry. If consumers in the United States were to eat less meat, uh, especially less processed meat, uh, which is linked uh, to cardiovascular disease in particular. Um, it would be good for personal health and it would be good for uh, the environment. It would be good for public health. It, it's, uh, it's, it's something that uh, we're moving toward very slowly. I hope, my hope is that in the future, the plant-based imitation meat products that have uh, become recently popular, uh, hamburgers that are made from, from plant protein, uh, my hope is that they will increasingly substitute for for meat from from real animals. We've seen this in dairy products. Thirteen uh, percent of the fluid milk market in the United States now comes from from plants, from rice, uh, from from almonds, uh, we, from coconuts. Uh, if if we can do this, also look at look what happened in the fashion industry when uh, animal fur was replaced by uh, synthetic simulated fur. If we can, if we can substitute uh, uh, plant-based milk and synthetic fur for real cow's milk and real fur, maybe we can substitute uh, synthetic or plant-based uh, meat-like products for, for real meat. Right now, those products only, only take over about one or two percent of the meat market, but I'm hoping that in the future that's going to grow. Yeah, but but just one last question: If someone would would approach you and say, "So I, as a, for example, U.S. citizen, what can I do in my daily life in terms of the kinds of food I eat? Perhaps small changes that could have, over the long run, uh, a significant impact." on these kinds of issues? Well, in the long run, it's probably uh, how parents uh, feed their children and how parents teach their children about uh, nutritious food and healthy eating. That's probably going to make the biggest difference. Uh, I hope that, uh, uh, that uh, parents uh, will, will emphasize and that schools will emphasize the importance of, of a healthy diet, even if that means uh, spending a little bit more time in food preparation and cleanup, even if that means sacrificing a little bit of convenience, uh, I think that uh, the payoffs uh, from a healthy diet uh, will be 
good for individuals, good for societies, and good for environmental health as well. Okay, great. So, uh, guys, the book is again resetting the table, straight talk about the food we grow and eat. Uh, Dr. Parbor, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find your work on the internet? Well, the book is available to purchase on uh, Amazon. Uh, it's uh, available either in a hard copy uh, or uh, in an ebook form. Uh, or in uh, audiobook. If, you, if you'd like to listen to a, a professional actor reading my words, you can get the audiobook uh, if you'd like to listen to, uh, uh, to English. Okay, great. So it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this episode until the end. The channel depends on your support to keep running and so I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Pretty page and consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even just $1, would already be a great help. You also have links to PayPal in the description box of the interview and otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, comment and subscribe to the channel. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Pereira Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Fordernes, Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingard Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windiger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Kusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslam Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Ian Solon, Roman Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londoño Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, My producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.